the stairway can be treacherous. All right, well, let's roll then. Like, we've already started then. Yeah, go for this it. This is the start. Welcome to episode one of Come to Where I'm From. I'm Joseph Arthur, uh, and this is our ge- first guest, Mr. Jesse Mallon. Hello, Joe. <laughs> nice to see you. It's good to see you. How's it going? It's going good. Happy to see you. Down here in this basement. I love it. What do you think? I like the brownie sign. Is that the uh, original sign that was outside brownies? or I'm was not that... sure. I don't know. I, I played brownies a whole bunch, but I, I don't remember exactly all the signs. But it's kind of where I started out actually doing my solo stuff every Wednesday night. Oh, yeah? Yeah. A after, residency. Yeah, me and a guy named Joe McGinty. He uh, was a great piano player. He lived around the corner on 9th Street. And mm-hmm. Mike Studo, who was uh, running Brownies, he let us come every Wednesday. And in fact, before I made my first solo record, I made a little EP to sell at gigs. Mm-hmm. And it was called the 169 EP. Cause, uh, Are you kidding? 169 oh, Avenue Way. That's crazy. Yeah, my friend Colin Burns, like, um, you'll appreciate this. He kind of like silkscreened the art on these like uh, cardboard, like thick cardboard little sleeves. So it was like real home-baked kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And we sold them on the first uh, tour before I made Fine Art of Self-Destruction. 169 EP. I think I still got a couple of 169. them. 169. Brownies. Are you, yeah. are you into numbers? Uh, like, sometimes. do numbers speak to you? I don't know. Like, when I'm on, like, treadmills and stuff, I start thinking about numbers. And, like, you know, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to bring it up to this at this time. And then back, you play tricks in your head just to get through the workout. But right. that's about it, I think. I mean, there's some numbers I like. I just like see recurring numbers a lot, like six nine is one I see a lot. Oh yeah. Three 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 eleven eleven spirit number. Type yeah, I like thing. eleven eleven. I need to see six nine more often, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and then, you made the fine art of self destruction. Yeah, I made uh, my first solo record, uh, produced by Ryan Adams, right. and uh, we did it at a studio called Loho on Clinton Street which I think uh, the Blue Man Group or somebody bought now, but um, it was engineered by a guy named Tom Schick, who is... I know Tom. Yeah, great guy. I work with Tom. Great engineer. Yeah. Yeah, so he went on to do all kinds of stuff. Now I moved to Chicago. Now he's Jeff Tweedy took took him him over. Sucked him up, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, bring... Let us have Tom back, Jeff. But around that time... You know, I had only been in bands before and, and played, you know, from hardcore bands when I was a kid up and then, you know, it was band Hope I had in Bellevue, but Degeneration and going solo, I was I was scared as shit. And, uh, you know, my manager, Diane, would push me a lot to go and, you know, play alone. And on the first tours that I did, it was just me alone acoustic. So I didn't have a guitar tech. If the guitar was out of tune or out of capo, I would just talk to the audience in these theaters in Europe. And so I'd just come up with these bits of my life and it became like these stage bits. But around that time is when I met you. I think um, that's we where met I at first the living saw you room. I think at the living room. Yeah. yeah, I had heard about you. You know, from uh, just a lot of tastemaker folks and fans, and you know, friends of mine that uh, really into music or worked in the music business. Mm-hmm. Uh, record people, they'd be talking about this kid that Peter Gabriel found, and he's really great. And and we kind of crossed paths. I think one night at the, the original was that the original living room. Yeah. It was funny because it was, was like, that? it almost where, felt where like was it was the on, original um, one? Stanton? Uh, Stanton and Allen, I think. And I lived around yeah. the corner, so I just walked down the street, and it was very much like the door was just open, and you yeah. just kind of walked in like you are walking into a deli or a coffee shop or something, and right there on the ground level, you know, was all this great action happening in there. That one had the magic. Yeah. And then the next one had some magic, too. But I never went to the other one in Brooklyn. That I never made it out to either. Um, yeah. You know, but they were great people that yeah, ran Steve. it. Yeah, Steve. 
Jennifer. And, yes, Jennifer and, and Steve. And then I, I had a CD for years before we really knew each other, like live at the living room. And it was, you were on it and I was on it. And oh, we were right. both on the cover and a couple other artists and stuff, maybe uh, Jesse Harris or somebody like that. Um, yeah, so a couple Jessies and a Joe. So, but, uh, <laughs> but then over time, I guess we just kept me and you, our trails. I, I, I don't know what, what was the next thing that we really connected on. I know a lot's happened since the early days, but. God. But different things. Yeah. So, what was it like going from from being a solo or being in degeneration to going solo? Like, what was that transition like? Well, I was really scared to be called Jesse Mallon, even though it's my name. But right. it was like you know, I was being in a band, and even though I wrote most of the songs in a lot of my bands, and some of them, you know, were completely my thing, uh, there was some kind of safety in being in numbers, you know, being in a gang and yeah. hiding behind you know three or four other people. And uh, Degeneration was, was a real group. Like, it was five friends that grew up together that, you know, liked the same music generally for the most part, uh, had all these inside jokes, you know, like real yeah. brotherhoods from Queens. And that was like eight years on, right? Like Eight it, years it, on, but we knew each other way longer than that. Danny, the guitarist, had been in um, Heart Attack with me and my hardcore band for a and bit. And you started that when you were 12? Yeah, I did that That's from crazy. when I was 12 to 16. Because they had, you know, New York was different. They didn't have to ID anybody. It was anything goes, um, you know, the late 70s, early 80s. And we auditioned at CBGB's. I called the CBGB's, CBGB's had an audition showcase on Monday nights. Yeah. And I called from the school payphone and, yeah. and booked an audition. And the only requirement was, well, they said was you had to play original music. Right. But the other requirement was you had to bring, uh, like, 30 people that drank. And, and you didn't. We didn't know anybody. So we failed. I know. I heard the story. <laughs> but we got the Max's uh, gig out of it. So What, Max? Max's Kansas City. Oh, really? You played Max's Kansas City? Yeah. How, when did that close? Uh, I think it closed in 81. Wow. So That's crazy. The You're last right. year was a lot of hardcore stuff. Yeah. But to answer your question, so, you know, I guess being bands, there was a certain thing, but um, like a safety, a fun, a gang thing. But yeah. then... Like with Degeneration, we wrote songs that we didn't think were just like mindless, you know, penis and tits bullshit, like cars and, you know, all that stuff. And it was egotistical, maybe, but, but we were trying to, you know, have something to say. And it was kind of social commentary or this and that. And, and it, it didn't matter what we sang about, you know, people would just write about our hair or our shoes. What do you mean or, egotistical? Kinda. I'm just saying we weren't, you know, like it wasn't all about like, look at me, baby, and I got such a big one and check out my car and right. I can't ride 55 and, you know, all that kind of cock rock. It wasn't that. There might have been some of that in there, but not, right. you know, we were really more into telling stories and lyrics that maybe somebody would listen to. Yeah. But it didn't you're seem super, to be the case. You're <laughs> super into that still. Like, I was always into that, I guess, from a, being a little kid, but it just seemed to me that like wherever we went it was just more about the image and then as we started to get more into the mid 90s when punk rock was coming back again with groups like rancid and offspring green day and even the crowds we had it they were more into you know being in a mosh circle right and and we could have been singing anything so it was a little frustrating we'd make these records and put a lot into it but, yeah but then the touring was like really feeding to that dance floor and uh, I remember yeah because yeah. I started playing in the 90s too and it was all just about how you could get people to mosh right in front of you yeah it wasn't about like <laughs> songs and listening and we don't so get like much. a combination because you know I used to go to class shows or specials and everybody's dancing and it's the thing but this was just about this mindless thing and I had left the hardcore scene in the mid 80s because I felt that it got too macho and too metal right and it wasn't why I got into it in the first place but now it's the late 90s and 
I just started listening to a lot of the stuff that, that I'd always had in my head since I was a kid. Jim Croce and Neil Young and Elton John's early records that were mm-hmm. very lyrical with Bernie Taupin and um, and the Bruce record, Nebraska, which, you know, was the record that got me into Bruce Springsteen because it was so stripped down mm-hmm. and so stark and so lyrically, you know, real. And then things like Elvis Costello and Billy Bragg and The Jam and, you know, uh, just, just stuff that was song-driven. And, uh, Is that why Degeneration broke up, or was there personal things? I think we did our seven years, and we had had a few different record contracts, and I think you know we were pretty misunderstood. We only did well in major cities for the most part, so when we were out there, it was us fighting the world pretty much. It was us against the world like every night in any other city. We'd get hit with chains, or we'd get beat up or chased or not appreciated oh, really? you know? so it was yeah it was fun if we were in la it was great we had you a got great chased thing. around <laughs> yeah a lot of weird stuff and if we didn't go over on stage you know at the shows we, we felt really empty so we would try to make up for it in the in the hotel bedroom you know right. or whatever you know try to find a way to make yourself feel better about things but it was good in new york and it was good in chicago and in you know certain tours it just uh We'd had a few bad breaks, and I think we were kind of doing something, I guess, not, you know, wow, we were inventing anything, inventing the wheel, but it was before rock came back again, Mm -hmm. uh, like in the early 2000s with groups like Strokes and White Stripes. But it was in a time when we were kind of in our last record, that cookie monster kind of baggy potato sack pants, and you had to have some turntables and a guy in a deep voice rapping with you while you played rock. Like it was that kind of, you know, cookie monster stuff. So Cookie Monster. It was really Yeah, it was a lot of that. And then we just made the band because we wanted to make a band that would be the band we would have wished we could have saw or been in if we were alive, you know, in the seventies or something. When you know, pre war on drugs, pre war on sex, pre AIDS kind of uh time. And we came up in New York, Giuliani was mayor and they were clamping down on dancing and walking down the street like everything was everybody was going through the system and this is obviously before 9-11 but we tried to make a band that we'd want to go see as kids and and it was influenced by you know the dolls and the replacements and the stooges and the stones and it was our poor man's version of that five-piece um thing with two guitars and a singer and i always wrote songs on the guitar and as a kid you know i'd listen to chuck berry for his lyrics and songs and jim croce and all that but when I got into that band, it was I just didn't know about you were a being Croce fan. physical. Yeah, I guess I said it twice. Yeah, but um, I got it to Kiss too. I don't know if that the, the lyrics there might not really fit into that box, but uh, some of them are good. It was just time to do something different, and and um, I wanted to strip it back down. So I started yeah. playing acoustically and playing here every Wednesday night. And at one point, uh, it was going to be called a band, and then somebody said to me, "You're scared to." to just be Jesse Mallon. They said, you pay for the rehearsals, you write the songs, you know, why don't you just uh, just be yourself? And then I was like, I pictured I'd have to sit down and wear hush puppies and have a mustache and learn to finger pick and it would be like James Taylor, who's great, but right. like, it's very adult. And then I watched some of my other friends like Ryan go and do it and, yeah. and Pete Yorn was doing it and there was people like getting a lot of respect. But, but even at that time, at the same time, there was all those bands like the Strokes, the Thrills, the Kills, the Yay, everybody was the thes. So I'd walk through mm-hmm. the airport, the Killers, and, and people would say, you know, I'd see you with a guitar, and, you know, what band are you in? And I'd be like, Jesse, Jesse Mellon. And, I know. And then they'd be like, yeah. you know, like. I hate and I, that, too. And I'd be like, well, you know, then I'd tell people, I'm in the Jesse Mallons, or, you know, yeah. I'm like, you know, Jesse Mallon, like, you know, like Leonard Skinner, like yeah. Jeff Rotel. What's your band? I'm Joseph Arthur. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, a band. One. I have people to play with yeah. me, actually, other musicians. But, um, but that first solo album was pretty real successful. 
It was like in the UK, especially. I yeah. remember Uncut made it album of the month, which was a huge deal. No, it was really nice because, like yeah. I was saying, not being understood, uh, or people not really listening to the lyrics, or people would write about my old band, you know, with Degeneration, and it wasn't what we were trying to achieve, what we thought we were, and then we'd hear like sound like we were some tribute to the Sunset Strip or something, and then with the solo stuff, which we weren't, but at least we didn't think we were. I don't think so. The solo stuff, it was like, wow, what I was writing and feeling. And then the reviews and stuff was positive, And they actually Real listened positive. to the songs. Yeah. yeah. Those and were great songs. I mean, I remember being blown away when I came and saw it at the living room. I was like, man, this guy's great. Mm. And I was kind of, uh, you know, pretty strict, strict, like critically. Like then I was judgy. And yeah, you, you had blew, some crazy good input though. You said to me, I always remember. You said, "When you produce your record, you should should make it sound like that early, like that first two, or one of those first two Bruce Springsteen records, like real lo-fi, like oh, right. like the Wild Ninnias or Greetings." Magic. Yeah, like you should go for that kind of sound. And yeah, I kind of knew what you were thinking there. Wasn't I, Bruce involved in that first record, or was it the second one? Yeah, he was involved in the third record. Oh, in the third one. But with the first record, you know, it's it's a funny thing they always say with people you have your whole life to to write your first record, you know. Yeah. And then that's why people's second records are kind of, you know, they have to write it on the road within a few months and, and it's yeah. that sophomore slump. And not every band like Zeppelin two is probably just as good as Zeppelin one. There's exceptions. But as a kid yeah, we definitely. noticed this shit because I loved the Cars first album so much. And then the second record's good, but it wasn't the same, and and Van Halen, which I did like that first album. Uh, I have to tell you that. Well, the of course, second running, record, running with the devil. <laughs> yeah, starts out your life <laughs> yeah. right there. But um, <laughs> you know, the second record we noticed, and we, you know, I didn't know what the point was or why this was that there was a lot of these you know second album slumps. So that being said, writing the Fine Art of Self Destruction wasn't my first record. I had made records before. But I had always been writing for other people with the consciousness of like, you know, there's four other guys in this band. And if I'm going to write lyrics, like they got to stand up there and it's got to represent the band. And when the solo record came, it was kind of like, wow, I can be my own shrink. It was like I could take the whole couch and just tell my personal story or my feelings. And so there was a liberation in that and a more personal way of talking. And, and also at the time, I had been broken up with this girl and, and I thought that if I wrote some of these songs that, and she heard them, that maybe I could get her attention, you know, it's always helpful as that a writer helps. if you think there's somebody listening, whether That's you're mad true. at somebody or you're, you know, you're trying to get back at someone, revenge or yeah. love or get their attention. And I have a song years later called The Archer, which is uh, about, uh, well, it was about J.D. Salinger and um, how he would write these letters to these girls in his later years. And they were like these little arrows. To, he, that's how he tried to like, connect and hook up with women and get a letter from jd salinger some right. actress on a tv show and uh so you know sometimes you, you th i thought of that and i wrote this on the archer why the him. archer because someone like sending out like these little oh, arrows see. like cupid yeah, or okay. something and, and and them being these notes and um for me having that wanting to make this statement and maybe get over this this breakup this relationship or get it back or mm -hmm. you know try to get this win this person back and none of that really worked out exactly, but in that process with that, those real things and you know, a couple songs, you know, it's all autobiographical in some sense. You, sometimes you change the words to, I say, to protect the guilty, but yeah. but uh, it was able to, to really be a liberating thing. And we did that record really fast in five days. And when I listen to it now, I could hear like, you know, I'm still learning a new voice from like the degeneration voice, but 
more than anything, it's just I'm always grateful that anytime you make a record or whatever, that there's a chance to a, a rebirth or a chance to do something again or have a second stab or third or tenth you know, shot at just being out there and that someone is going to maybe listen to this and you create this thing, like, you know, you're an artist, you're a singer, and then you get to put it out into the world and, you know, you get to sing it over microphones in public. It's like standing up and, and you speak and you feel from the room if it's if it's true or not, if it rings true when you get up in front of your peers in a dark, pissed-out smelling room and, you know, say these things over a dirty microphone. Yeah, well, what do you think is the secret of your perseverance in all this? Um, I really enjoy doing it. I really think I can't think of anything else. We used to say, what else we do? Rob Banks or whatever. Right. Like, there's something really, exor- like an exorcism or some cleansing about, you know, especially playing live. You sweat out all this poison of life. And uh, it feels really good to play music. And it feels even better to do it with people that are good and that you like. I'm, I'm very grateful for the musicians in my band that I've had for yeah. the last five, six years. Like, they, they make me look good. Yeah, well, you have a real band now. It yeah, seems like. it's hard to keep that together because uh, you know the music business is tougher. And That's what I mean, though, about yeah. the perseverance because yeah. it's uh, it's hard to survive. You, well, you got to be hungry, I guess, and you know I still yeah. get excited like with a, you know a new record every time. Like it's it feels like close to like you know I still get that thing waiting for the test pressing and the artwork to come in and you know like yeah. just to see that. I mean and. Uh, and then to hear it, like we used to do, uh, a lot of people when they make records, they do a car test, you know, like go in the car. It's very, like in California, in the parking lot, we Rick listen to Rubin. the mix. But we do the bar test here in New York. We yeah. go in a bar and we listen to it with a I bunch of people I remember when we around. made the EP. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That well, I really feel like fun. the new record feels like a first record. Well, that's... You know, I've been listening to it and it just feels, it has that feeling of like, that sort of hunger to it. You worked know. long and hard on it as you know um yeah. and and it was the first time with a, a new manager i had who just said keep writing and keep writing and you know we went through like 40 songs maybe to get to i think 19 that we recorded maybe 22 but you know it doesn't mean that's good because you, everybody you can write a ton of songs and what i've learned is editing is a big part of it having a, a producer sometimes is someone to tell you don't do this or do that and uh, when I look back to my first record, you know, I had this one song. It meant so much to me. And Ryan said, oh, that's a B-side. And, and I was like, really? It's got the sax and the Tom Waits groove. And looking back at it, it's called Strangers, uh, Stranger Than Fools. And it, it clearly was the B-side out of the bunch. But when you're in it, you know, it's like all your kids. You love them very equally. And you or all new toys. Sometimes it's the newest thing. You want to play with that song. And just because it's the Emperor's New Clothes. But uh, this record... It was just, uh, I think just a lot of heavy stuff happened while we were making it. It was humbling. I think not having a full album out in a bunch of years, as you know, you know, you kind of miss being in the studio or in, in, the, in a place where you're going to come and put forth something. And I felt like I had a lot to say and, and a lot of things that, that had hit me, a lot of loss, deaths and things that just kind of put the, you in perspective of what really matters. And, and sometimes all the bullshit and all the things you're waiting to get this and get this great review or play this tour sometimes you just got to sit back and be like wow i enjoy just playing this song like you know and and that makes me happy and to stay on 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 inside of that so uh yeah i think there's some of that with this record i like this line in uh my little life won't go away easy oh yeah that's cool that song was uh that's how it ends kind of, still or is that going to be the closer that's the closer of the record yeah, yeah. my little life um 
It's kind of, I have some favorites. people in, in my family and I've had some close friends that have a real hard time with life. I mean, everybody does like, you yeah. know, we get depressed, we need certain things, you have rough days, yeah. but people that just going into a store to talk to somebody and ask for something or people just going out of their house is like so hard. Like they're so shy and, and scared and, and life is just so heavy that uh, I've just witnessed that and thought, wow, you know, I, I can't imagine what that's like. Because life isn't that hard for you? Well, not, it can not. be real hard. I've had a lot of hard stuff, but where it's like, like I enjoy it, but some people just take it. It's yeah. really like a like a, a battle, and uh, and those people can be perceived as like, because they're quiet and scared, like antisocial, like I say in the song, or, you know, like they could be like they're snobs or they're mean or whatever. Meanwhile, inside, they're just like really struggling with it, and um, I've just witnessed that with some people I love, so I kind of wanted to try to write from, from their perspective perspective yeah well i mean i think like having an outlet a creative outlet is what maybe gives us that fuel and energy in life if you don't have that you know and and going into a store i, I don't know everything maybe hits you harder yeah because it's like your projects or your creativity is what kind of like sails you through the streets you know and, and i've like, had pieces of that where i've been really hung over on a sunday and just got you know your nervous system so worn down and you know you, i don't want to even go to see anybody at the deli or i've got to go into this you know fruit market on avenue a and hope i don't because i don't feel like i can't even talk because i'm so hung over it hasn't happened in a long time but i kind of can't imagine feeling like that every day you know and you have so many outlets where you know you paint and you work yeah. out and you, you box and you <laughs> make music and i need them uh, all I, I remember going to see you at bowery ballroom and i was like yeah. this guy's on stage playing a show and he's painting like a 15 foot canvas like behind him at the same time he's doing a painting and playing a gig yeah. and then he sells the painting at the end I of the gig I'm like, it's for sale yeah. <laughs> i've seen it sell like yeah it i does. was just like what a what a cool thing but hey so where'd you get the title sunset sorry sunset kids um well we had a few titles i like that title yeah we had a few titles and i guess not to be morbid about it but you know we went out to L.A. to see the record, uh, to actually, to start at the top of it, Lucinda Williams, who produced the record. Right, Lucinda, we got to We didn't get know. We went out to Los Angeles because um, she invited me to see her open for Tom Petty. It was the last night of his tour. Uh, I saw that. I saw that At show. the Hollywood Bowl. Yeah. And uh, she was playing an hour set. I went with Mandy. Oh, our yeah. good friend Mandy. Shout out to Mandy. Mandy Stein. Mandy Stein. We love you. We love you. So she said, you want to come, you know, any of these nights? We play an hour and uh, Hollywood Bowl outside and end of the summer. Wow. And uh, I'd seen Tom Petty before, but I feel like I hadn't seen the I right never had. Gig. That was my first. Yeah. I'd yeah. seen a couple and, you know, it, they were boring. Not to, really? to, to diss the dead or such a great artist, but I Man. went to the garden and I was like, I could just listen to the record at home. You know, I don't know. And then I went another time. So I was a little hesitant, but people said, this tour, they're really, yeah, you know, it was it's just amazing. a special tour. So I asked my manager to go because he was, like, talking about some things, and he was like, yeah, you should go out there. And, we, you know, I was like, all right, let's go then. Let's go check this out. And we went, and uh, Lucinda played this hour out at the Hollywood Bowl, and, and then we go backstage, and I start talking to Lucinda, how you doing? And it was so good to see her play this great gig in this beautiful place, and people loved her, and as they should, the band killed it. And I said, how's Tom doing? You know, how's it going to be tonight? She said, he's sick, you know. And I said, uh, oh, she said, he's got a cold, but he's smoking. I was like, oh, boy, I, this is going to be a weird show. Now I'm going to see my third Tom Petty show, and it's not going to be good. I, I really need a good Tom Petty show. So we went out to the seats, and 
we're sitting there and my manager goes, you know, this is the last show. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, this is the last Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers show. And I said, you're not, you're not right. I heard he loved this tour and he got up on the airplane and he said, we're going to do a lot more. And he said, I don't know. I heard it's the last one. And I wow. just argued. So we watched the show and it was so good, like so good. amazing. I don't really know was. what was in the air that night. Maybe the whole tour was like this. I was blown away. I was too. And there's a song on that record that stood out on that record, Wildflowers. Uh-huh. And um, like all of them. Yeah, almost. but there was one, you know, that that stood out that night. But in the past, uh-huh. I hadn't really noticed this song because maybe there's four, there's 15 songs on that record. I don't know if it's when yeah. CDs came out and people it's one of those like too long put, ones. But you're glad it's too long. Yeah. So he played this song, "Crawling Back to You," that night in in California, under the stars, and in the last verse, I don't remember it that well exactly. He said something like, uh, "Me and my butt." Um, me and my sidekick i was drunk and he i was he was my sidekick i was drunk and he was sick uh we got into a barroom fight and then an indian shot out the light and then it said the things i worry about don't happen anyway That's something like that but yeah. that line the things i worry about don't happen anyway yeah stood out and the way he delivered the whole verse i was like i needed to hear that right yeah. now i need to hear that right now actually <laughs> yeah. it just gave me goosebumps so it was just so great then you know i bumped into all these people at the show and then we left and me and my manager walked out and he keeps saying this is the last show you know and we bought one of those five dollar bootleg t-shirts outside of, on the hill of and uh, I wish I kept mine, which is silly. I don't know where it ended up. I think up. Mandy did get one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I went with Mandy. And the next night we had dinner with Lucinda, and we started talking about ideas of doing a record. And um, I guess a while before that, there was a Rolling Stone piece where she interviewed me, and I interviewed her, and then it was a journalist in the middle, and they said, how about you know a collaboration? So it planted this seed. So we just talked about it, and she had been working with a guy named David Bianco who had done wildflowers uh-huh. and done a million things but he worked on a few petty records but wildflowers is one of the things he did with rick rubin and he was a guy i knew from degeneration did my first ever go into a major recording studio record uh the first degeneration album for emi at electric lady so bianco had done that we had picked him because he was super nice right but he also did frank black teenager of the year i love that record and it's cool acdc song big gun that we thought had a sleazy old school sound and and uh, but the guy had done everything from like you know um, teenage fan club to you know the first Danzig record maybe the first two right and then he had done a lot of Dylan during his time and Lucinda loved working with him so what Dylan did he do he did the, the together through life or something like that it's called I think it was a big record for Dylan about five six years ago he did the Christmas record which was a lot of fun actually uh, and uh, and another one like so like recent stuff. yeah later stuff. But uh, and later, two or three Lucinda Williams records, and he was a sweet guy. And she brought him down to a gig that we did in L.A. And me and him reconnected. And here was this guy, you know, when you're 25 and you first make a record with a producer and all, it was like it made a big impression. And and so it was cool to go full circle with him. We felt comfortable that we would try some stuff out in L.A. And we worked with him a bunch. And uh, he, well, Tom Petty had passed away a week after we all hung out in L.A. I got the call. It was the same day as, you know, Vegas. A friend of mine called me up, and that was that horrible day. The night before Marilyn mm-hmm. Manson had got hit with a light rig, and I thought, well, that's terrible. And the next day I got this call. Tom Petty was had passed, and then the Vegas thing, and it was just really heavy. So that passed, so we went in the studio and uh, worked a bit with Lucinda. Let's see how this thing fits and, if, and how it feels. And, and we used some of her players and some of mine, and, 
and we did a bunch of stuff and it just felt really great her instincts for how a take would be like you know you record two or three takes and if she was moving and grooving she'd be like that's the take and I've always been a huge fan of hers as a writer and as a, a singer and you know one of my favorites I'd first heard her on a Steve Earle record I Feel Alright mm -hmm. the last song came on and this voice just jumped up right and I remember calling up uh Joey Ramone at the time we'd talk every day back then and he'd say what are you listening to and I said I heard this woman you probably don't know her Lucinda Williams and he said I know her I said what Joey you know Lucinda Williams and he said yeah I did a, a thing with her I'm like a thing what did you do he goes, it was a songwriter in the round and they had done one at the bottom line in New York oh really and it turns out did Lucinda would tell me and I've done those but not that one I yeah. did one of those at the bottom oh, line oh really yeah Citizen oh, Cope Citizen Cope yeah. Susan Vega Suzanne Vega yeah and a dude who wrote um, like in the jungle or something like that Welcome to the jungle. No, in uh, the mighty jungle. The we didn't introduce you, did we? Introduce you to the podcast. Ahu wow. Lazen, yeah. the producer. That's the first time I saw. The second time I saw it was in the round. It was you, Cope, Susan Vega. Cope was still an. Unknown. Cope was killer. Oh, he was amazing. I was like, I was blown. I was blown. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so you know, eventually Lucinda would tell me that Joey would send her music, and they were talking about maybe collaborating and writing, and course he didn't last and live as long as we would have loved him too and it was a, a sad thing you were good friends with him huh yeah we became friends because uh, it was the first tour that degeneration went on that was a major tour it was them the ramones in theaters and they were like you know it was one of the reasons i got the courage to write songs mm -hmm. i'd be sitting there trying to learn and hailing licks and studying with guitar lessons suddenly i heard the ramones i'm like i got three chords i'm gonna call cbgb's we got a gig let's write these songs right and then seeing them and they're very real and sweet people to us uh especially joey even though you know joey and johnny didn't talk that much in their later years in the van they'd ride around in the van and i could speak to silent. each other and but johnny was very good to us and uh and and had a real cool attitude in, in a different way and each of them were great and joey and i just really connected he was my neighbor and he where did loved, he live he lived on ninth street and third avenue ninth and third yeah so we go to movies and we go to shows oh, and he really? just loved rock and roll and he had a very sweet warm heart and he you know he wasn't partying in these days he would just wake up real early and be drinking his you know frappio frappuccino thing uh -huh. and he'd leave me these long messages which i still have on cassette you know my answering machine you know about me all excited at nine in the morning and i'd wake up around one and call him back and what would he be excited about you know uh, you know i got this new song or i want to dj at the green door party or oh, really? some band he's producing or the new Ronnie Spector thing he's working on or you know one of the groups he's real excited about or helping out Degeneration I want to get you on Howard Stern or you know like he just had a, a lot and, and he was very supportive he, that's cool he lent me some money to help make the first solo record um, and he loved one of the songs Solitaire but you know he was uh, was generous he lent me uh, lent me five grand which uh, wow was a lot of money and still is a lot of money you know yeah. I was I didn't have the big record deals anymore and it was you know it was a tough time he he was just a guy that like some people in music their mo might be sex or drugs mm -hmm. or money and and for him he just loved rock and roll like he right. just you know he'd be in the van with his headphones on and if he was around now he'd have a show on Sirius be like some super DJ yeah. But uh, Peter and what a Buck wonderful is like voice. that. Yeah, he just pure loves rock and roll, kind of like that too. Reminds me of that. Yeah, but you I pay that, that. You, you pay that forward because uh, you're very helpful to lots of musicians too, and people. 
Well, know? you just try to, I don't know, you treat, treat people like how you'd want to be treated. Like I say, like people have been good to me, you know, whatever. Like I met Joe Strummer. He didn't just blow me off. He stayed till five in the morning, drinking tequila and yeah. answered every question and told every clash story or whatever we yeah. wanted. And I was like, I don't know if I could do that every night. I thought maybe he was just doing it because he was in New York or something. No, and I, then I had friends that met him all over North I, America. I met him in England. I, I smoked my first ever spliff with uh, <laughs> Joe Strummer. Where was I that? Didn't even, I didn't even know what it was. It was he was uh, I was at Real World when I first went over to Peter Gabriel's studio, and there was this thing called Recording Week, and Joe Strummer set up this thing called Strummerville in Peter Gabriel's studio, like in a drum room. It was like all this Recording Week thing, all these improvisational studios. Wow! And so he was kind of this outlier, even though he was the biggest legend amongst lots of legends, really. And yeah. I remember just h hanging out with him and like he would jam and play a tambourine and hand you his telecaster and be like, let's jam. He just had that that spirit. And, yeah. he, and I was sitting at a, a picnic table with him and a bunch of his crew and they started rolling up a spliff. But I didn't know what that was because in Ohio, where I'm from, it was just weed. Right. Nobody put tobacco and hash. And I just never saw that before. Mm hmm. And so when it came around, I was like, I'm going to smoke that. I don't know what it is. And I did. And, and then it came back around. I smoked it again, and it did nothing. I thought it was going to be like a big deal because it was Joe Strummer. But it, it <laughs> Maybe was, there was too much of the regular tobacco it, in there. Well, that's a, yeah, spliff is mild. Right. It's no big deal. It's oh. just tobacco with a little bit of hash. But it's like, more my speed. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you don't smoke any of that stuff. No, no. I quit weed, too. Yeah, I tried it, you know, once or twice at a party. My friends know I'm not into drugs, so then yeah. if I'm wasted, like on New Year's Eve, like, Jesse, do it with us, do a hit, and I'll be yeah. like, yeah, I'm not going to be a sniff, I'll try it. But I'm always drunk, so whenever they talk me into it, I never get to feel what you it's barely like. barely drink, really, though, too. These days, a lot less. Yeah. But um, I didn't answer the question, so I'm going to swing back. Um, sun, We can go back into the, the booze and the, and, the, and the health food, but um, the... The record started out, and we were at Dave Bianco's place and doing the stuff with him. And somewhere in the middle of the process, we were going back and forth from New York to L.A. based on Lucinda's touring schedule, my schedule, and David Bianco passed away just out of the, the blue. And, and um, I guess he had driven himself to the hospital and had a stroke. And wow. it really was shocking, you know, just, you know, Tom Petty, this. And I had a buddy I grew up with that worked for the Grateful Dead. Chris Cherokee came to New York. We went out, saw the Bruce Springsteen play, hung out. And, you know, a couple months later, he was gone. And um, and then after that, um, you know, I was thinking about all this stuff. Yeah. And, and my dad was sick. And I was down in Florida writing songs in a hotel visiting him and and throughout the year as we were making the record my dad would pass away and never played him I, he's always very critical we didn't grow up together and I'm sorry for and your loss. Be, yeah it's all right it's been he'd be like yeah i can't wait to, let me hear something i'm like when it's done i want you to hear it right well, we never right. got to that because but he was critical yeah well you know he'd be like yeah i think you know you should do this i mean he didn't like wasn't like some music expert but right you know as a father i don't know he could be a ball breaker it's always a funny thing i mean yeah he he liked the solo career he was proud of that i played with his hero bruce springsteen but right. degeneration he didn't really understand he'd be like what do you got that's that song true. scorch uh, what, what kind of shoes you wearing those those platforms i like right because you look like retard shoes like uh rain man <laughs> what are those mother goose shoes all Orthopedic oh. shoes. I'm like, Dad, they're brothel creepers. Your boy Elvis wore them. Oh, really? But, you know, he'd be a little <laughs> bit funny like that. He's like, get a job, work, cut your hair, go to the post office. I'm like, right. Dad, we sold out CBGBs three nights in a yeah. row. He'd be like, I'll come see you when you play the garden. 
Wow. And then we did play the garden, but we were opening up for Kiss. But he did come to that. Wow. But my dad got ill, and he passed away. And uh, a guitar player that had worked with me for a long time in Degeneration and in my solo stuff, Todd Youth, passed away. And um, yeah, I remember another buddy of mine, Tom Vaught. And, and it was just... Um, a lot so i kept thinking about you know how much of this heavy stuff i mean yeah we're getting older but yeah. we also live in a, a faster lane not that my dad did but like right. you know you see more of it i think in people that live on the edge and live hard but it just a lot happened and it hmm. kept happening so i was staying at a hotel in la and i walked down the street and i was thinking of different titles and i i saw this store i think it was for children and it said Sunset Kids on it. And I said, oh, I like uh, that. And, I, and you know, we're yeah. going back and forth with making the record on the West Coast, East Coast. And I just wrote it down um, in a little notebook that I still carry, the analog uh, Palm Pilot thing. I use a real pen and like you have. Mm -hmm. And it was in there, and I had a bunch of titles. And I explained to uh, somebody what why this title meant something to me, why it could be a, a, a you know contender for the record. And uh, this person that, that was at the record company said, oh, that, that makes a lot of sense. And... You know, my manager liked it, and you know we we're fighting over titles. And I said, you know, it just feels natural for it. And then we get, you know, I wanted something like that, and and that, that's kind of the story behind it, I guess. I, I really so like that just title. just the passing of those folks, and and the record's dedicated to these people. It says the Sunset Kids, but um, yeah, I don't know a title and anything like a band name. Like after a while, you know, it kind of becomes its own energy. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone said you're going to name your band the Police, you, right. you kind of would think like, what do you think of? You think of cops and badges, but now you think of like Sting, Sting. And, you know, the car. Like I don't know, it becomes, you know, a whole different thing. The Beatles. I don't think of when I was a kid. I think of Bugs or the Beat. I guess you know they were being clever and the Crickets and Buddy Holly. But you know, names become its own kind of energy. Yeah. I think about these things when I'm in the van sometimes, like or or names kind of um, explain what's going to happen or something like you know, the Clash, like it didn't work out, or you know, uh, the Dead Boys, like the singers, debaters died, or um, I think there's some better ones like than that that where you know you kind of uh, manifest your destiny in the name, you know, somehow. What? Yeah, I was wondering about that with Sunset Kids because I was like thinking, is this it's like my retirement record? Yeah, <laughs> I, was, I actually it, it crossed my mind. Uh, I was like, yeah. I wonder if this is his last record. <laughs> God forbid. I hope not. But yeah, yeah, definitely not. I'm retiring to become a comedian in the the newly renovated Catskills. Uh, beards and buns we're gonna do they got comedy upstairs <laughs> yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm going I'm gonna upstairs. try I'm gonna do it we're gonna do a few bits here the Shecky yeah. 5000's coming out this one Shane um, where you got the line everybody sends their love and then at the end it says don't deny it yeah I love that yeah, it's sometimes good to say some one thing and say it over and over again don't deny it yeah because it just means like I guess you're singing to what Shane McGowan yeah, I got, uh, I guess, into the Pogues, you know, maybe a little bit later. I saw them in the early 80s at Danceteria. I didn't get it right away. I saw, like, one of their first gigs. Mm -hmm. And and then uh, a few years later, Joe Strummer, funny enough, produced a record called Hell's Ditch, and I really got into that. And then Shane left the band, and I went to see the Pogues at the Beacon Theater, and Joe Strummer was fronting the band, and it was pretty cool. But there's Joe Strummer. This is, like, this great thing, and people are yelling for Shane. 
And I'm like, wow, you got Joe Strummer here, and you're still yelling for this guy, so he's got to be pretty special. Yeah. I started to get more into their stuff. I always liked Fairy Tale in New York. I always thought it was the best Christmas song ever written, and the uh-huh. video with Matt Dillon and the police precinct. And there was this romance with them that was like, all right, they had this Celtic thing, but then they understood this kind of New York rock and roll or this cinematic, like Sinatra, Once Upon a Time in America. Like a lot of things I grew up loving, Scorsese films, and just slice-of-life characters that... Yeah. Um, I always like to write about people that their humanity is so strong that they're willing to go down with the ship and, you know, self-destruct. It's like that Daffy Duck thing in the cartoon Bugs Bunny. You can only do this trick once, boys and girls. Right. But like people, you know, some of my favorite films when I was a little kid because my parents were split up and I went to movies all the time to like learn about like the world. And it was the 70s, you know, films like Dog Day Afternoon where the Al Pacino character, Sonny Mm -hmm. Wartzik, you know, he, he could get out of the bank or get away, but he stays with the people in the bank and becomes their friends or in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's yeah, Nest, uh, uh, Jack Nicholson's character, R.P. McMurphy. Like, he could have left, but he has to stay and get this kid laid and put on a party on. And and so there, there was always that, that the feeling. Indian. The Indian being there. Yeah. And, and so I started to notice a lot of this in the Pogues and their writing, and I got into it late. And uh, It's in your writing, too. Yeah. You got a Jake LaMotta reference in one of your songs, oh, yeah. too. That's uh, Chemical, Chemical Heart, Heart. Yeah. yeah. But um, I guess somewhere around my first album, I would go on tour, and I was missing my friends home in New York, and they were out drinking every night and you know, at, at 7th Street at Niagara, and I felt like I'm missing out. So I put a shout-out on the, the second record, the, one of the songs, Hanging with the Local Talent, Drinking Like You're Shane McGowan. Right. And next thing you know, that becomes a single in the U.K., and we play a show, and he comes to the gig. My stage right. manager goes, look to your left, Shane is McGowan's here. Next thing wow. you know, he's on stage. You manifested and, and we, shame. Yeah, we sang together, and uh, it was Oliver's Army by Elvis Costello. But um, a few years later, which was like about a couple months before we finished this record, in the middle of it, I, I got invited to go sing at his 60th birthday. And a lot of people, like it says in the song, didn't think this guy would make it to 60. And he has his 60th birthday in Dublin, and... And I'm asked to sing, you know, a couple songs. And, and who's on the bill? It's like Sinead O'Connor and Nick Cave and Bono and Johnny Depp and Glenn Hasnard and uh, Bobby Gillespie. And it was just unbelievable. Corcho Rodin was on bass from the Pogues. And Shane is there singing, too, but he's in a wheelchair, right. still drinking. And he's in a wheelchair. And, and I flew from Texas. I had played a, a, a special tribute to Alejandro Escovedo with Craig Finn and some other folks. Um and we went from Austin, and I flew, stopped in New York, and went, and was up all night. I was up since the Austin gig, and I got to Dublin, and I rehearsed real fast, and I'm there with all these people, and I'm, like, the only, like, real New York guy there, and it's all these people that kind of know each other in this really nice place, and the president of Ireland, and, and I talked to Shane a bit, and he was like, he knew the song I was going to sing, and he's holding my hand with his wine, and there's Johnny Depp, and he's like, yeah, he's reciting the lyrics to me of that song, and meanwhile, he looks pretty pale-like and scary, but... The night ended, I did my song, and we're all on stage, and um, the president of Ireland comes out, Shane's in the wheelchair, and I'm standing next to Nick Cave, I'm standing next to Johnny Depp, and Bono, and the, the guy from the Frames, and, and suddenly uh, the kid from the Libertines, they, they try to give him this big award, and it's so heavy, and uh, and he, of course he can't hold it, so this military guy that's with the president turns around and hands it to me, and I'm holding it on the stage in Dublin, and I turn to Bono, he's right there, and I said, you got to take this, you got to hold it, and I said, I'm a Jew from New York, and, and he just goes, no, no, you, and he just wouldn't touch it, so I had to carry this thing <laughs> off, so I felt like, you know, 
it was so an honor to be there. And then it was an after party, and Shane was drinking, That's and we so sang. Funny cause... But I felt like Forrest Gump or something. I'm with these people. The photos came out in the magazines, and I'm with all these people that are like, you know, these heavies. So I went home and wrote the song about him, and then about kind of my experience uh, there. And and Lucinda sings on it. So uh, somebody asked. I I put out a tweet or uh, Instagram about getting some questions, fan questions, and at I am human wants to know about the after party of uh, Shane McGowan's 60th. Well, it was, I had been drinking, you know, sometimes um, alcohol can be a funny thing. I, w- I was in Dublin, so I was going to drink Guinness because it tastes better over there. Yeah. And I had some jitters. I was nervous because I was out of my element. And also, once you start with alcohol, and this is going to sound very alcoholic, but, um, you know, I wanted to stay, keep going energy-wise because I hadn't slept. So I had a few. And plus, the energy and the nerves. I remember... Um, I once sang with, with Bruce Springsteen, not to drop all these names here, at, at Giant Stadium. And, and when I got wow. off stage, 60,000 people, my heart was racing so much that I did a few shots of bourbon, which I never drink, and I was sober as hell. Like, it, it was like I it the, 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 ener- the energy was so high, or if you get off a roller coaster. But, but um, you know, so we were drinking and drinking, and I got up, and I think I sang a Bob Dylan song with the band. There was a house band there that was pretty cool. Different people were getting up, and it was this, you know, good time. Uh, Joe Strummer's wife was there, and uh, some other folks I know from from London were there and uh and Clem Burke who I played with and Glenn Matlock and his wife and, and it was just some great folks and a lot of fans even though it was in this fancy you know place in Dublin this Lincoln Center kind of place mm-hmm. and as we're doing I'm trying to like find a way to make sure I'm going to stay awake and enjoy this but I knew I couldn't stay all night and then I noticed in the big crowd leaning against the wall in his chair was Shane and he was there and nobody was talking to him or whatever and yeah. now this is after the whole show he sat through he sang this is the after party but he was so hardcore he was up in a dark corner against the wall and it was like some nurse type of woman like with him watching him and I just went over to him and I just started talking to him and I held his hand and I said you know I hope you can, you know, really hang in there. I was just saying all these loving, like, kind of this moment, like, I hope you're going to be okay and whatever. And, and he, he was just nodding his head. You could tell the night was getting long on him, but, but he, he was still coherent. And kind of it just made an impression on me, too, that he was just he was at the after party hanging by himself in the corner. And, uh, yeah, that, it was, was fun. What was the impression? That, you know, this guy, this is what he has. This is his life. Like, you know, he's not just going to go home and be, you know, sit, you know, come in for the, you know, fancy moment and get the award. Like, he's there, like, checking it out. Like, he's a lifer. He's committed to this lifestyle. It's in him, music and being out and the people around him. Just, yeah. Just seemed like, you know, he's a, just but, a brave guy. Hey, he was born on Christmas, you know. So. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That's I don't know if he's a carpenter or anything. But, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, born on Christmas. Yeah, That's why like, he wrote the best Christmas song. Now, though, this lifestyle, I feel like everybody's getting healthier and, you know. Um, well, I and, think he stood up now and he's actually walking. But, yeah. But there are different things. I once said to Bob Gruen, like, in the 70s, because I noticed on the D-Generation tour bus, as much as we liked to drink and stuff, we loved our bottled water and the waters and we yeah. always had to be hydrated. And I said, what did people do? Did they drink water out of the, you know, the sink there? He goes, no, you woke up, you drank more drinks. Or, you, you know, I was like, did they drink soda? He Too goes, you painful. just drank, you know. Ugh, but, um, you know, I do think as much as there's so many things in this world that are changed and the world's gentrified and the technology and the telephone zombies like myself walking down the street and not in the disconnection and disposableness mm-hmm. of 
the modern thing and, and what, what the technology has done that's been great and things that it's hurt. But I think that there is a consciousness of health. I've been vegetarian since I'm 15, yeah. and it was really hard going on the road. Like, yeah, you want a vegetarian meal, they'd give you a Domino's pizza. Like, yeah, there's no meat. you know. So meanwhile, you'd eat cheese and carbs and, yeah. and bread. But I think, you know, going around to different places, you can go into some weird Walmart or supermarket in the middle of America and find, like, your veggie burger and your almond milk and and bottled water. Maybe it's a scam or whatever, but there's more more awareness to these things and they're more accessible. And the same thing with working out. There's, you know, all kinds of coffee places and banks all over New York, but there's also gyms everywhere. And, you know, me and you like to work out outside, but some days I like the gym and there, there is yeah. that other thing. And I think some people are getting healthy. The, the one thing we got out of hardcore, you know, coming in with hardcore punk, uh, we missed the whole seventies thing. It seemed exciting, but it also seemed, you know, like I never liked going to a doctor and getting a needle or like, it seemed like it just didn't look sexy to me. Some of these junky guys, like all messed up. It didn't have like that romance. And with hardcore, it was like, all right, we're going to be, really crazy have something to say and in your face and aggressive and loud and we're going to be straight so deal with this yeah and people like jello biafra would talk about that and you know we noticed like all the people that had a message the yippies the yuppie you know the yippies before the hippies um the some of the punk rockers a lot of people burnt out with, with the drugs like joe strummer singing all these anti-drug songs and meanwhile you know the drummers i got a heroin problem right. and maybe joe's even snit like you know you, you'd want to preach one thing but it's also you know it, it's always the demise of a lot of great artists because of pain and because of i also learned too you know you go on the road every day and, and you're out tough. there and then they just give you free stuff like oh i got yeah. a free bottle every night like before you know it you know like and it's also being away and finding the ways hotel, to hotel, just the hotel. Yeah. Like, even though they they can be nice, it's just there's something about that environment that you know can like make you extra lonely. I guess. I have a song on the record that's probably my favorite on, on the new record called Room Thirteen, and it's uh, I think it's going to be the first single actually. We're doing a video for it this week, but the idea behind it, I think the course is I spent some time in a hotel room thinking about love. Yeah. And, you know, hotel rooms, we don't always think of love. We think of other things, you know, in there. But um, just that time that you have when you're far away and out of your comfort zone and you get to reflect and meditate on, on what matters and what means something to you. And and uh, I get that, you know, riding in a train or a car or a plane, looking out the window. You know, sometimes I cry on airplanes watching movies because you're up there all alone yeah. and the cheesiest movie will end and I'll find myself bawling, you know, because you're just in this vulnerable place. And I think um, travel does that to you. So I could see why, you know, people would want to medicate. But with hardcore, you know, there was just a lot of things we learned early on, like the PMA thing that the Bad Brains were talking about from that Think and Go Rich book of... Uh, positive mental positive attitude, mental attitude. And, and just find ways to make things happen like yeah. that DIY thing which is such a cliche but like that you know there's ways I had a friend of mine Victor Murgatroyd we'd wake up every day and we'd have no money and we wouldn't know what to do he goes there's ways there's ways and <laughs> you know I still think of him and I hear his voice saying there's ways and we would sell our CDs or we'd go up yeah. to the record companies and go yeah can we get some records and we'd go sell them on St. Mark's and find ways to, to eat or we'd start throwing parties and DJing at this thing called the Green Door to you know not have to work a day job you do all these different things when, when degeneration first uh started to come around before we, we really wanted a record deal but first we wanted a bar deal and that was meant that we could drink free in any bar in our neighborhood you know down there in the east side and it seems ridiculous now but um especially for me 
kind of funny. But but uh, it was like a big thing, like that he knew our band and we could come in and have some free drinks and then you know then get a record yeah, deal. Now but, you got bar deals all over this place. <laughs> yeah, then I don't want it. But the thing is, <laughs> you know, the the keeping your mind and your body and there's just something about you know feeling good. I mean, I like to have fun, but Do I think... Do you pray and meditate or anything like that? I've or meditated. You... I haven't prayed. I've, I've done meditation and yoga. There's a couple spots I've gone to, and I I get uh, a lot out of that, especially in the days of the technology, the phones no and the computers. Though? No, I mean, I, I've said the prayers that they say at the end of uh, at Integral Yoga, but just, uh, just think about love and life yeah. and, and uh, the universe and that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm... I'm not religious. I've never been, but I believe in, in an energy and in, in people and and a rhythm. And you know, I feel that we're all really connected, even though there's a lot of terrible people out there. I think that there's there's a real worldwide global bond. And I think you also learn that playing music that how small the planet is. You know, and you, when you go around to places that you don't even read about or hear about. I went to Moscow, and I you know it seemed I could it felt very connected in some ways, as much as it was completely different. You could see the humanity, and I think rock music as corny as it sounds kind of i always say this kind of connects us together it's it's a it's a thing that brings people together from the heartbeat and stuff you know we're the doctors without borders we just go around you know well, one of the things i think that's important about you is uh you're keeping that sort of cbgb's new york city energy alive well i'm a fan you of that know, stuff um, I, I always you know like without them. you i don't like i mean the bowery electric this place coney island baby yeah you know um i don't know we it used just... to do these parties at a guy named Giorgio gamelski's loft this guy who was this old russian uh well european Is that guy the green door parties yeah and he had yeah, a green door and molly his... asked about that she wanted to ask you about well, that she well, said after um... wants to know about the green door parties coney island high and how your musical empire was built of that momentum at molly three king that's her question okay I, I, I got know some Molly. Fan Hello, Molly for out you. there. Yeah, how you doing, Molly? Good to hear Shout from you. Shout out to Molly. No, I think I know she is. No, but I mean, how you doing? Where am I over here? After Heart Attack broke up, I had this band Hope that never made records, and it was a tough time. I was like in my later teens, and my mom just passed away, and I had to move back to Queens. I used to live, um, well, I'd crash in in our rehearsal studio on Avenue B. Uh, I think it was 162 Avenue B shared a studio with the false prophets and my band heart attack and then it was hope and uh we'd live there i worked at a health food spot and i'd live on out of date yogurts and tofu and we'd you know do the push-ups and jump around with the guitars and play and and, and then we'd uh you know book gigs and, and eventually that place would become the lakeside lounge and stuff and now dream baby and i go in there and i'm like that was where my bed was but i wanted to find a way to to stay out of a heavy job and i wasn't going to school that much and i had a but kind of raise my sister and go back to Queens and so I got a van and I just figured I could carry my gear and go on tour but then I could move other people and so I made flyers and I went all over the city and I'd drive bands from the music building to CBGB's or I'd move kids going to NYU or furniture and Castro converters and you know futons and we worked for everybody uh, from like the Swans to Barbara Streisand and and, uh, and so it was a good gig and then 
it's still like lifting a lot of shit. It's giving me a hernia, but was I would able stiff to hire? Don't lift. Yeah, Johnny Stiff does it now. Johnny and stiff I had like don't nine lift. vans, and they all died violent deaths. In fact, one I violent. rolled a 360. I broke my nose. Oh, really? On the coming back from Pittsburgh at a wow. gig, uh, we had a trailer. We switched drivers in motion. Don't do that at home, kids. Don't do that away wow. from home. But um, you know, one New Year's Eve, we just didn't want to be me and my friends in a club, like listening to all the music that we hated, the mainstream rock or whatever club stuff i don't want to list any bands this time but it was just we didn't want to be stuck on new year's eve at one of these big big clubs so we decided we want to throw a party and play records that we loved and try to get people to dress up real funky and wild and dance and we brought in all the booze in my van from a beer distributor in brooklyn and the door was green so we called it the green door party and we said save new year's eve and that's what we called the party and our girlfriend sold the beer and and we put on the records howie pyro my friend my roommate would eventually become my bass player in Degeneration, and my friend Richard Backus, and my ex-girlfriend friend Holly Ramos, and my friend Victor Murgatroyd. We all threw this together, and it was packed, and people had a ball. It went till six in the morning, and we did this in this guy's loft. It looked like the scene in Midnight Cowboy, like that loft party scene. Giorgio uh, took very little money. He let people rehearse in his place on different floors, and he also had an S&M club that he didn't run, but he took uh, a little percentage out of it called Paddles. And I remember I'd load bands <laughs> in with my van. They'd be rehearsing. I'd be loading bands in in the middle of a Saturday night coming back from a gig, and people would be getting spanked and paddled. And So I knew that this <laughs> place great. was available for parties. So we did the green door there, and it went so well that someone said, do this again. Right. And then we did it again, and more people started coming out, and like it got really fun fun and we'd listen to records and play records from like the stooges to you know funkadelic to sly stone to the cramps to you know escarita and uh the idea was just about dancing that Mm -hmm. people had to really dance and so after that ended it got so hot there with no air conditioning we started doing it at different clubs and we started doing it at a place on saint mark's that was uh, only open one night a week called boy bar Mm-hmm. But they let us come in, and we started doing it there. And was eventually, it a gay place? It was a gay place yeah. that uh, Dean Johnson, a lot of cool people. Paul McGregor had owned the building. He was the guy that invented the shag haircut for Jane Fonda and the implosion wow. or explosion haircut that Jimi Hendrix had. And supposedly Shampoo, the movie, was based on him, like the character in it. And Joey Ramone said he went there. He told me, I went there to get my hair cut once when I was a kid. Apparently, Paul McGregor, the landlord, when he was cutting hair, would come out every Saturday. And people would wait online and come out dressed as a cowboy or dressed as a sailor and like they, wow. an Indian and then bring him in and you get your hair cut. Did he give Joey Ramone his famous haircut? I don't know about that haircut. haircut. I think yeah. Joey went there to get the, before he told me, the Jimi Hendrix haircut. Oh, you know, it's to look like that. It's like a fro. I don't know. But, um, so this space was magical and I had seen... It's weird to think of Joey Ramone as Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everybody comes from somewhere but I know. <laughs> but, um, so we went in there and, and uh, we did this club all the time and then eventually uh, these people invested and I had this idea that instead of just doing Green Door that you know we'd maybe do a a club that would be every night seven nights of this and i hired all my friends i didn't know what i was doing and uh i named it coney island high because uh coney island going out there and riding the cyclone and doing all that and jumping off the pier and everything was something me and my friends loved doing it was one of our favorite my favorite places in the world still is and i thought coney island high and people like well it's not in brooklyn the idea was 
that it would also be like a high school, like the Ramones Rock and Roll High School. Oh, right. And Coney Island High. And then kind of like Max's Kansas City. Well, Max's Kansas City wasn't in Kansas City. Right. So let's just do this thing, Coney Island High. And it would yeah. look like a school. And it was on St. Mark's. And so I had a record deal with D-Generation at this point. We were Didn't touring. Didn't a clown on it or something, too? Like that steeplechase clown. That, that wasn't our thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. But, you know, I was touring all over the place. And I hired all my friends. I didn't know how to run a place. I hired some people I didn't know. And everybody gave the place the liquor away. And everybody had a ton of fun. But we weren't running it like a real business. And I'm, you know, I'm on tour with Kiss and Social Distortion. And we got all this record company money, which I had put some of that money in to do this club. And uh, Giuliani was the mayor. And they started coming after us for dancing. And one of the biggest nights was the Green Door Party. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when people come out and go see a show, they have a drink or two. But they don't spend a lot of money. But if it's a dance party and people are hooking up and they're having fun. So we, we had to stop dancing. We're telling people, you can't dance. And we had That's signs crazy. up. And they said, what is this, Footloose? Is this Footloose. real? And I said, no, it's cabaret laws. So we tried to get a cabaret license, but it turned out St. Mark's Place, that between second and third, was zoned residential. Wow. And you looked out the door, they were selling condoms and T-shirts and crack and, you know, Japanese food and records. And so we couldn't get a, a cabaret license because it was residential. When was it zoned? A hundred years ago when it was res- It was a real catch-22. So we lost the place and uh, learned a lot of lessons, but it was a fun five years, that, the nights that we had there, and a lot of cool bands. Ramones played there at Iggy Pop and Beastie Boys and tons of young bands and hardcore shows. And, and so we learned a lot about it. You know, I wanted a place, as we said, for the kids, by the kids. And, you know, I guess if we were smarter, we might have had more money to fight the lawyers, and to fight with lawyers and, and stand up a little bit more. But the city... Uh, as much as Giuliani would become sort of a hero for a moment during 9-11 and after, it, it was really felt like a, a dictatorship, fascist kind of state when he was the mayor. I went to jail twice, and I don't have a police record, but one time after playing the Garden with Kiss for an open container in front of the Garden, I just really? played, and another time for putting up a poster with scotch tape. I did two days That's in the tombs. Crazy. So it was a cuckoo time. So after that, I just wanted to have a little place with my friends, you know, a little bar, like a Frank Sinatra kind of fantasy. So me and Johnny T and a couple other folks uh, opened up Niagara, you know, just a place where we could play records and hang out. And I think when musicians aren't um, touring or playing or, you know, you want to listen to music and talk about music and drink and talk about music and talk to girls and talk about music. And, you know, so it was that kind of thing. We just did it real casual and we would let every band you know, wherever I go on the road, I always want to find that bar where the good music is or it used to be a jukebox or where there's a cool DJ. Where do we go? You know, you ask people, where's a record store? And so uh, we just made it a place. If you were in a band, you came here, you know, you come and you and your crew come and you'll drink free and, and hang out. And and, uh, and that, that became the thing. And, and Joe Strummer came there a couple times. And uh, so when he passed away, they had to make a video for him, and he was he was gone. And, and Josh Chuse, my friend who I've known for many years, did all my album covers, was close with Joe and made a lot of his artwork and album covers, was in charge of doing a video for a redemption song, the Bob Marley song. And mm. uh, how are you going to make a video with this guy that's not in it? Well, in our neighborhood for years, the, in the Latino community, they do a rattle can-style memorial on the wall for a lot of people, uh, a lot of different artists down here in, in the Lower East Side. So he had an idea of having these two artists that knew Joe, uh, Dr. Revolt, and another guy named Zephyr. Dr. Revolt had been married to my sister, actually. 
and go in and do this mural of Joe on the wall and as it's being painted film the video and have people coming up and paying tribute to Joe with candles and flowers because when Joe had passed people wanted to mourn him in New York so suddenly outside an Niagara Bar because he'd been there three or four times they put flowers and candles out so maybe mm -hmm. that got the wheels rolling so here was we were going to do this and Josh was going to direct it and a lot of good folks like Steve Buscemi and Jim Jarmusch friends of Joe Rancid and and uh, um, folks like that came by and we uh, did this video and, and the mural was up and, and it was really a, a sweet wonderful video for, for such a good song Joe really sings the hell out of Redemption song on, on the street core record mm -hmm. maybe it's the last song and then said oh let's just leave this up here still you know? up and we didn't think of that like as a thing like oh just leave it up you know we were joking yeah. it doesn't even look like Joe somebody said it looks like Morrissey but like he would yeah. like it he had a sense of humor you know yeah. it says the future's unwritten no you're future's right future's unwritten and then uh, it just stayed up there and um, you know tons of people come by and just take pictures in front of it and yeah. became kind of part of a, a thing by the park there but uh you know, so that that made what we were doing our little rock and roll dream or having this place of keeping music going like having that out there was like you know just a, an accidental you know gift i guess so yeah that josh and joe and everybody dr revolt you know brought us but um so uh it's been in a few videos i think i even had it in a video so it's just a thing to have these these kind of spots you know kind the of bowery electric was that meant to be kind of a cbgb's type of vibe um, well, it's, like it's on Joe Ramon Place, yeah. Yeah. It was an old electric supply store. Uh. So uh, I was supposed to do that place. Me and Johnny were going to do that with Joey and his brother. Joey was really into doing a club, but he was into food. He wasn't drinking, so he wanted to call it When Eggs Collide. And he wanted to have some <laughs> food there. I swear to God. When Eggs Collide? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and he wanted Boy. to have, like, coffee. And, you know, it was what he was into. <laughs> When you know, the guy was collide. writing songs about Maria Bartiroma and, you know, people what talking about... What a quirky about, guy, huh? Yeah, but so much heart, so much soul. And, yeah. And again, like Joe, they made his last record while he was gone. Like, you know, took they had to beef up demos and use vocal performances. The last Joe record, you know, was made after he had passed, uh, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure. And, and definitely the Joey one. Uh, some of the vocal takes and things were that Daniel Ray had to put together through, you know things that were maybe you know not they were the demos or whatever so there's a song on that last joy on that joy ramon record the don't worry about me called searching for something that really it's very conversational and very much like him going up state and getting into some meditation and and uh hanging out with this girl who was really into going to india and it, it's just this this kind of he got love, into that joy song. Ramon. yeah and I, he liked getting out of the city and and uh and, and it's just yeah it's a cool one to check out was Search, he into yoga and stuff like that i don't or? think so much maybe in a simple way i mean physically yeah. the guy i don't think was born with the best body he had a lot of ailments and a lot of things right and was unhealthy and was in and out of hospitals throughout the ramones it's amazing they toured that much i think johnny just pushed that ship military style going right. you know and uh, watching that in action you know we learned so much from them on touring and stuff just just how they ran it you know so uh just a lot of it's funny you know death is a star like that song like you know the, now they're bigger than ever you know everything but they never fully got to see that when they were alive and yeah just like an old couple they, they played the clubs still basically yeah yeah they had to they make their money on the road now they you toured go to, in a van really didn't they or yeah. did they have a bus ever they did the bus but the van was more economical yeah. they laughed at us we were in a bus opening for them in a van it was kind of embarrassing with degeneration but you know we had the record company money and but they were in a van and they you know had to 
down. They had, that, that was one of the things we noticed, and we went back to the van. <laughs> right. And we'd pull up with the tour bus. We'd be like, wow. But uh, you actually, you seem to feel better as a band when you're in a van together. You're, you're, you have more jokes. You, it keeps you guys in the good days in the van. You know, we'd listen to cassette tapes of the Jerky Boys and like that you come up with a different language. It's like if you ever go to a camp or you go hang out with your friends for long enough, you speak a certain way for over the summer. When you go on tour, you kind of get these inside jokes that no one else understands. And, and you're in this, this world. I always uh, look at it as like even now putting together a pirate ship of people and going yeah. around the world. You get to pick the sound guy you want. Or, you know, I have these people like Harry who's worked with me or Mark, my sound guy. Like you put this world together and go from town to town, you know, and uh it, it feels really nice and, and in the bus people can isolate and go in their bunks and go away and, that's you know, true you know the yeah. weird guy in the back lounge or you know yeah. whatever I've been the weird guy in the back lounge yeah I guess so let me give you another uh, fan question from at Marie makes art who wants to know if you struggle with people pleasing and what frees you to give yourself permission and motivation to make art when so many other identities would be easier to sustain in the eyes of others who need you to stay small. Yeah, well, there's always question. there's always people that <laughs> will that really get, there's, there's always haters. There's always jealous people. There's people that are competitive, and you know, it's funny. Like when the Strokes were doing so well, I noticed that like a lot of my musician friends in New York, like, oh, they're they're, they're not that good, or they sound like this, or television, or they, yeah. and I felt like they were great. I was so happy for them, and I also knew what it was like to kind of have a little success, not what they had, but with our band, Degeneration, where all these other bands, instead of being like, wow, you know, wishing us well, and that we'd be doing something that could maybe help the neighborhood by opening other doors for other bands just were haters you know and jealous and with the strokes i mean they brought rock music back them white stripes whatever interpol and brought new york back yeah 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 and the yeah. strokes and those bands like music rock music in new york so i was so into them me too and then that back there that and first album in particular yeah is, i like the second one it's incredible lot. yeah the second one's yeah. really cool too second one's pretty good too um and, and i just thought this is great for for rock music in america and in the world and for new york and and for me i always kind of end up doing what i want there's always a lot of people that would be like well why is he doing this you know folk music or i've had friends that call me jesse cougar mallencamp or you know like really? they want me to stay in hardcore or dgen and you know when i when i was in the hardcore scene like people you gotta be so hard and you gotta be this not anymore though no but this was back in back the day then. and then i was like well i don't want to be like some you know hard skinhead that's not what i'm about right. and people you know i want to use my brains and i you know want to use my body but you know, like there are people that was always backlash. Your band is this, this, these guys are soft. And, and so, you know, you had that at school, people that knocked you and judged you. I grew up in a place where, you know, I was into Kiss and some people that like Zeppelin and Sabbath and even other things, the Grateful Dead, were like Kiss sucks. And the older kids could see through it and the Kiss sucks and you get beat up a little bit. But when I got into punk in Queens in those days, it wasn't fashionable like now where people's moms have mohawks and colored hair and tattoos and nose rings. It was like, you're into punk, you faggot, you killed your girlfriend, you know, you're a junkie, homosexual or all three or whatever. And so it would be real. Everyone beat you up. It wasn't just like the kids that like Zeppelin fucking kiss. It was like the disco boys hated you. Everyone. So you kind of had to find a way to get thick skin and be into what you liked. And I'd go yeah. into the city and I'd come back from the city and the kids in the city in the Queens would go like, where are you coming from? The village. And, you know, I knew what they were trying to say, but it was like, you know, it was like this ignorant thing. So coming up 
And after a degeneration, I kind of wanted to, you know, even that, even that was like bands were in grunge and we, we weren't, we didn't fit into what exactly was supposed to be. We had to deal with a lot of adverse situations. So going solo, I had people like my first couple albums, like, why isn't he, you know, playing in degeneration? Why aren't doing this? And in the end, if you're not happy and you don't like what you're doing and you're not, you know, it really connected to it, I think it shows through. And you know, to please people, you know, you can't, you know, please everybody. I try to be positive and, and the people around me in the world, like I go out, I don't, you know, I might be moody at times, but if I see people that, you know, I want to be present. I want to be in the moment. I want to talk to my fans or friends or, or strangers or somebody yeah. asking a question in the street or whatever. Like, I think that's part of the human thing, but sometimes you have to protect yourself. And I think you need to, especially, um, being an artist you need a place to go and refuel and, and not just be like some guy walking in your neighborhood that people know like you have to kind of be an outsider an observer and, and I like going in strange places where no one knows me and kind of watching the movie as opposed to yeah. you know partaking and being one of the, the guest stars or whatever and and so I think you gotta I think it's great to keep real positive stuff with people and be open but also to save something for yourself, if this answers the question. And I think, you know, a lot of my friends, the people I know since I'm a kid, I, you know, I grew up in this city and a lot of New York people, my friends are still here or around that those are the valuable friendships. And I make new friends, you know, me and you are relatively a new friendship. It, yeah. it means a lot to me, but I, I don't let everybody fully in. Like it's, it's a certain layers where it, I well, guess it takes me a Well, there's a line on your new while. album about yeah. people think you're cold or something like oh, that. Oh, that's in the My Little Life or just antisocial. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just don't know what to say sometimes. But, Is that uh, true though? I but that's not that's that's still from the perspective that's me writing through those people I was talking about right. before. That yeah, that's not really just that are shot. Yeah, I'm writing that you. song through um, maybe even my sister or my cousin or certain people, a right. couple friends of mine that are just very different. Yeah, uh, that that ain't that. But no, I like I like people. I like going out. I like socializing. I'm an Aquarian, and you know, I'll have a few few drinks and jump around but i think you have to also know where you know sometimes quiet time and 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 certain people that that sometimes simple things away from the whole big party are, are just as important as being in the crowd and being on stage you know yeah it's kind of a balance Jesse, a couple of years uh, back g degeneration uh, <laughs> got back together you did a couple of shows didn't you like at irving plaza was that the original lineup Degeneration got back together. Yeah, we did a record called Nothing Is Anywhere. And it was the original lineup, which was the reason, I think, the, the, the main lineup. I mean, there was some people, different people at times, but that was the lineup that did the, the main records, the, the, that got the first record deal, that did the first few albums, and that was a real band. Um, Why'd you do that? Because everybody was still or? alive. I think we, we got asked to do, the reason we wanted to do it was also because we got asked to do these festivals in Spain, and they kept asking every year, and then one year everybody just said yes, and I thought it would be fun to, like, go back with the guys and, you know, just uh, it's a family and, and have some fun. and Make a new jump, record, maybe. Yeah, jump in, a new char in that character for a bit. But uh, it's tough because, you know, things change and, and everybody's a little different and right. some things don't get better, some things get worse. But we had some fun the first round. I think we did it twice where we kind of came back from the dead mm -hmm. and uh, did Irving Plaza and we did a little bit of a tour. We went to Europe. and But there was the Spanish people, those, they were just so, they remembered us from like a tour we did with Green Day and they kept making these great offers. And then finally, once we figured That's if we're going to do a rehearsal for one, we might as well play I think London. I know those Spanish people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we need more of those kind of... 
David, oh yeah, 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 love the art, <laughs> yeah, yeah. rock yeah. and all that stuff. Shout out to da- David, yeah, yeah. But yeah. it was fun to you know take the shirt off again at 40 years old and jump around. You can and pull it off. Hit yourself with the microphone and roll on the floor and you know some kind of uh, scream session therapeutic white wool rubber you know took his foundation. Do you think it'll ever get back together or is that that? I don't know. I think that we did it twice and I. Yeah, as you get old, I don't know. You know, that stuff is, is a certain energy in an age. I mean, I sometimes things with that, too, like you love the people, and it, it's nice to, to try to keep the friendships going. And if you're playing music with them, it's harder to, to really, you know, love these guys that are in your life so much. But uh, I'm proud of the record we did, and some of those gigs were really, really great. Yeah. And uh, there's a thing that that band has there. It's like because we can fight so hard we can you know we we can love each other hate each other there's it's like a five-headed marriage there's you know a lot of different weird friendships that have been broken and mended and there's two brothers and, and it just has whatever people thought of the music um was there's like a real energy as a band we were like a thing as far as you know forget the songs even or whatever just uh yeah, as a group a of a thing. Are you going to write a, a book? You should write a book, I think. I don't know. It's either that yeah. or a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> many people the, are doing the yeah, podcast, right. Joe. This, is, the this is your first one birthing this. Is this. <laughs> Thanks but, for uh, birthing it, man. No. Appreciate I, I want to thank you. I mean, knowing you uh, as we've gotten closer, making the, the EP we did, uh, mm-hmm. Meet Me at the End of the World EP, and other songs, uh, Fox News. And I guess it started, I think I came to your house in... Um, Red Hook, yeah, and I wanted to do a song for my friend who's been ill. Um, we started the Positive Panther charity for right. Natalie Baverstock, yeah, and I had a song I wrote because I was doing these shows for her, so I figured I wanted to write this song for her, and yeah, and then we wanted to record it. And I said, I want to take this folky little song that we have and mess it up and give it some, some art and some color and, yeah. and not just be all horsey about it with just an acoustic. And so I came to the doctor here, and, and we went out, and he was next to this chop shop or this junkyard or this mechanic <laughs> place. I lived for a and he went years. in there, and his paintings and <laughs> all this stuff, country. and there's no isolation booths. There's just a couch and a few mics, and <laughs> me and garage. Derek and a piano that's tuned to like the Elliott Smith tuning. And, uh, <laughs> 432. And, and, yeah, and we just started to go, and I was like, wow, there's something here. You know, this is great. So we, we put that out for, uh, for our friend as a single yeah. and, and uh, did a video for it. it I think uh, that was beautiful. London Rain is the name London of the song. London Rain, yeah. yeah. And, and Tall uh, Black Horses. And then I came and did a song, Tall Black Horses, that I couldn't get Which right I still for so love. long. Yeah, that was that's a real special one. And and then started working on the EP, and we were going out to the late great Water Music uh, in Hoboken, where uh, oh right, you know there was a great board there. And then working in the city, but you know just getting to know you and seeing your energy, and then and then we had a friend. Uh, mutual friend came by to Liz and suddenly boxing gets introduced into That's the mix. That's right. I and got into boxing and, through you. And Joseph's planking for like four or five minutes in the yeah. middle of the control room. And then, well, um, I was going through some rough times. And what? so you, you landed in my life in a, in a great way. Mm. I mean, well, for I real. feel the same way. Yeah, I mean, like, you'd come yeah. in and you just add these things. And even with the new record, you know, it was like we were working on some stuff and then we started working with yeah, Lucinda. I, I, and you I just snuck on in there a little bit. Came in a lot and added a lot of things. Yeah. And some of them, I've turned them up even more in the later mixes because they were just, just that extra ingredient that you bring that, you know, we can have a song, but that thing that makes it stick out, that little thing you'll notice, they'll yeah. not, I don't know, it, it's really the art that I think you can add. And you have a good way of Thank just you. walking in and using any anything that's available whether it's your your phone to an instrument or whatever a piano 
and uh, and that was really fun. And then, you know, just seeing, like, you know, you ride the elevator with this guy down, and next thing you know, you know, he's taking a picture that could be your album cover, or, you know, I walk across the street, and we got the next photo. or The flower pot. Yeah, the flower That's pot. That's a pretty good there. photo. Yeah. That, I posted that today, got a lot of likes. That was at the end of the, um, <laughs> end of the late night session. <laughs> You know, yeah. <laughs> so I think the energy that, you know, you bring it to a room and then, the, and then you know, what you do going from all these great projects, doing your solo stuff, but then like suddenly, oh, I'm disappearing. I'm going to go do Arthur Buck and yeah. next thing you know, the record's out and there's a tour. And I just like the way you can, uh, you seem fearless and move fast and, and that energy, you know, even seeing you paint in the back of this basement. Yeah. The other day I saw Joe and, I, you know, I saw you and I was like, hey, he's like, yeah, I want to paint down this basement next to the beer. I'm like, yeah, go ahead. And. You know, the next night, you know, three paintings end up on my phone that are just amazing. So, Thanks, man. You know. And one's right behind you right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that got done here. Wow. Yeah. So, but, yeah, th this has been a lot. And, and uh, going to see you play in different settings, you know, with Russell on drums or you oh, alone. Oh, man, Russell or, playing with yeah. him was great. But just, yeah, all the different ways that you pull it off, that's like a thing, like when your stuff is that strong that you can do it in different ways. Like Neil Young, like you know, Thanks, he could do man. a country thing, or he does Crazy Horse. I think you have that that thing where your your songs and your personality stand out. Because I think the first time Appreciate I saw you it. were looping stuff. Um, I don't know how you were doing. You're hitting jam man. You was hitting pedals and things were playing the at the same time, and I was like, wow, this guy's doing all this. Well, we should tour together mm -hmm. in the fall. I was talking to Keith, my manager, about it today, going like, yeah, we should do some shows with Jesse because. Uh, no, your record's coming out. Coming out in October, so after your Is yours, that like the first record for a long time? First solo for a long time, yeah. yeah. What about you? When was the last solo for you? It's about five years ago. I think Woo! for me too, man. Wow. It's crazy. Well, you had a song like called Diamond Ring. Oh, huh? And didn't you have a song called Diamond yeah, Ring? Did. What yeah, record Lonely was that? Astronauts. Lonely Astronauts oh, was a good record. Yeah, yeah, yeah let, uh, let's just be. <laughs> yeah. But uh, and you had uh, you did some other endeavors besides uh, just playing where you opened up a, a gallery, right? Yeah, it was Museum called the of Modern Arthur. Yeah, I got that from Spencer Drake. Shout out to Spencer Drake. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we should we should do some show. Yeah, he, he <laughs> sent me emails. a couple emails. Yeah. <laughs> shout him out. Did some good album covers. Yeah. Yeah, um, I would love that. And um, yeah. I'm doing uh, my record celebration show at Webster Hall. I know oh, you're going to play on that, that too. It's uh, yeah. September 14th. And I went over there to check it out. I, I was here and I ran down late to see some of Patti Smith and, and see the place. And, and uh, Michael Stipe, didn't he open up that one? Yeah, I missed all that. I would have liked to have seen him. But, you know, they kept it pretty. They still got that Art Deco balcony and the ceiling and the stage is still facing in the right direction. So I was thinking about all the uh, the stuff. You know, we grew up in that room, and, you know, it was the Ritz when we were kids, and I played there with the Misfits opening for them and the Dead Kennedys. And yeah, I can't then, imagine what it's like growing know. up in New York like that and just being in on the scene for your whole life like that. That's it's wild. weird. I mean, you know, coming from Queens, you took the train in and, you yeah. know, coming out of the city, but it was close, but it seemed some people never left Queens. You know, right. it's like it was like another going to another country, but I was <laughs> like, get on this train and get down there, and there's shows, and you can record stores, and you can sneak yeah. into these clubs. But uh, the Ritz and M-Webster Hall, it's, it's like a classic room. It's good when these venues don't go away and things, you know, where people can play music still exist. That's the one thing. Well, I, I mean, I, yeah, it's hard to put it the right way, but I feel like you definitely, like I wrote this song called Mayor of the Lower East Side and everybody assumed it was about you. And I think it kind of was about you. It definitely <laughs> was inspired by you oh, really? because, you know, and then uh, there's a line like, you're the mayor of the Lower East Side. 
I heard them saying, you keep New York City alive. <laughs> like, and not to, like, embarrass you with too much, like, you know, fluff, yeah. but just... Well, I don't want to get too political. I, my, my, politicians, that's scary. Yeah, no, but, it's not... Pol- it's, it's yeah. you know... It's mayor McCheese over it's here. It's the uh, well, spiritual mayor. <laughs> <laughs> it's keeping that, you know, it's keeping that rock and roll spirit alive, you know, so... Oh, thank you. I mean, you. you're definitely helping with that in a big, big way, musically and also with just, like, the clubs and... I still like New York. I mean, people say, well, New York's changed and everything. I love it lately. Yeah, you've been digging it. I know. You almost went west on us. I know. I get, like, I get stuck. I get stuck in the west. But But when I come back, it's like, damn, New York. But the whole world is gentrified. It's not just New York, you know. Yeah, it still seems cool. Yeah, I I think it's, you know, and I'm, you know, I I don't want to go back to the boroughs because we worked so hard to get away from those places. I had to live in Greenpoint when I had no money, and I had to live in Williamsburg when it was, you know, very different. And and Queens now is a hip neighborhood, so so I'm still in New York, New York, the the old Apple. Well, I feel like, yeah, this is new for me because I'm in New York, New York. Yeah, you were in Brooklyn, yeah. I was in Brooklyn forever, so it, it actually does feel like a reawakening in a way well it's kind of like to me i still feel like it's uh i would say a santa claus town like it's a place for dreamers you know you come here and you, you, know, you still have these things it's a lot more expensive we used to be able to live my friend lived in the next uh, building in the basement in the rat cage and sold records or people lived in store for, you know i lived in that storefront of that thrift store rehearsal room but you know it's a lot lot harder a lot more expensive and and yeah. you know to turn a trick down here and but in some ways, you know, you walk out your door and it's all these cultures that come through here in, this, in New York in the five boroughs. There's a clash of people and energy. Walking is a great process for me for clearing out my head or writing yeah. songs. Mm-hmm. And in other places, like I tried L.A. and get in a car walk. and it's very lonely. I walk in L.A. I treat L.A. like New York, but it's weird right. because there's only like sort of homeless people spiritual warriors and junkies that walk and male so. prostitutes and they all look the same we all, prostitute, you know. Yeah. they're all doing that strut <laughs> that, that that swagger yeah. but, but there's a thing you know here you, you know so but it yeah. is it's changed it's hard and you know i just don't know where else i go i still have that somewhat of that you know fantasy you know but it's a reality too if i want wohop it you know chinese food at three in the morning and go to wohop it's open if i want to you know, I still go out to Coney Island. There's still certain things it's that still are New York that City. are New York as much as you know. We got Starbucks and Chase and all the stuff that everybody's got on every corner of the world. It's all. It used to be there were things here that no, you couldn't get anywhere else, and this was different. Each place you went to was different. Slowly, things have become really, really similar with the change. Yeah, but there's still stuff here that you can't get anywhere else. Like these old bricks that are uh, stones that are uh, 100 and something years old and holding us up. So. They well, got rats here bigger than anywhere else, and hot dogs. Yeah, but at least, uh, yeah, like San Francisco, I guess. Anyway, I don't even want to go into what New York's my with. home. New York's my home. What my. about Chicago? It's got the Wrigley Field. It's got the Liars Club. It's got wax tracks. But New York's my home. <laughs> what about Kansas City? What about Ohio, Joe? It's got the, I don't know, is you this a classic, or are you making this up? Ray Charles. Uh, so, uh, oh, it's a Ray Charles? Uh, what about L.A.? Oh. It's got Mandy Stein's place. It's got <laughs> it the does. Troubadour. That's a nice place. It's got Cantor's. It's got <laughs> Pink's. It's got Tofu Hot Dogs. It's got Donnie Graves. But New York's my home. <laughs> what about York's Portland? <laughs> it's got Peter Buck. Peter Buck. <laughs> you can see Kevin Kinney might pop by. It's got Dante's Emporium. <laughs> it's got the place of Church of Elvis. It's got, what's that, Mary's Topless Dancing Jukebox. 
but New York's, New York's my, my home. home. <laughs> <laughs> um, that would be a good place to end the podcast, but I want to ask a few more questions. How long have we been going for? Twenty-five. Wow, that's pretty good. Yeah, but let me get this one. Right, I'm gonna this have a, to. You got. Go you gotta go soon. All right. Well, this one's from at Lilu Two, and she Lulu. wants to know how do you um how do you tap into your subconscious in your muse? Well, like I said, sometimes things just come walking around. Like if you come in, you know, just an energy of you know, walking through the city and hearing different things or going to a movie and being really quiet and listening and a movie really affects you and then suddenly you come out of it, you don't want to talk to anybody and just go walk into your apartment and pick up the guitar right away and just something just comes out. And I record it. I always record it to make sure I won't lose it. But, you know, I used to record on cassettes and had them piled up all over the place. Yeah. But now and you and the now iPhone. I use the iPhone or whatever, yeah. yeah. But like just getting in that state, you need. How many voice memos do you have on your iPhone? Uh, yeah, let, like we'll have a to thousand. Count. Yeah, where'd that phone go? Yeah, somewhere. Did I get right. rid of the phone? Throw it out. But um, it, it also, you know, you need input. I think there's a thing, Joe Strummer rule: no input, no output. But also, you can relate to this. It's like another uh, one of our heroes there, Bob Marley. You know, lively up yourself. He used to say, yeah, like, yeah, go yeah. out, work out, get that work blood out. going. But there's something about just a That's state true. of oxygen. Yeah. But also waking up, you know, I sometimes before you turn everything on and answer your messages or hear anything, mm-hmm. coming out of that state of sleep and just, you know, uh, just sitting down and writing what the first hour, just not thinking about it and just letting stuff go. Yeah. I was once on a morning um, pages. Do you ever do that? Probably in my own way. Now, I don't know. What, what is that? <laughs> it's from the artist way where you just write three pages like without, every morning, every morning without yeah, thinking that's great. about it. And, you know, somebody once, uh, I was on a, a panel in South by Southwest once for, for songwriters, and they asked uh, the people around me, I think the guy on the left was Pat Denunzio, another one we lost, um, of the Smithereens, great songwriter. Yeah, great. And someone said, what, what's your cure for writer's block? What do you do? And he said, ass in chair. And that was a big ass, too. But he said, <laughs> ass in chair. But, you know, it was like you just do it and, and you got to just, you know. But sometimes things come yeah. to you. I always try to carry a pen and I'll write on things in the movie theater. If I yeah. hear things people say in bars or on the street or someone says something in the van, sometimes that triggers a song and an idea. Um, you know, just having those moments, you know, reading or whatever. But really to move forward, I think uh, getting out and just that forward motion is really good for creativity of the brain. And then I I, I have another thing, too, where sometimes, you know, know, you're playing other people's songs that you love and getting all this music or learning an album. And it it just kind of opens up some different chords or different ways. Sometimes moving a capo on a guitar, you hear things different or different tunings. You play kind of tricks on yourself. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways I love to write is um, usually I feel pretty good on tour, like because I know I have a gig, so I'm in a good mood. And going into a sound check in different venues, I'll come in and I'll test my guitar and my voice over the microphone. And if the room sounds really good and I just walked in off the street, yeah. I'll, I'll just start writing at sound check, hearing my voice in a different way through the speakers, through the, through the size of the venue. And I'll always get something. And then sometimes yeah. finishing it. The hard thing is it's like getting the initial blast mm-hmm. and then crossing your you know T's and dotting your I's is, is the harder thing to go, all right, we got this structure and this and that. Now let's sit down and, and write the song. How many songs but, do you have like in the bag that aren't on the new record? 
Um, we probably have about it, like another twelve or something. And like are you maybe another do record. something with them? Yeah, deciding whether it should be like another record. I mean, the last time we did that was with Outsiders in New York before the war. We made so yeah. many songs. We did two records, and people were like, "Oh, how would you do that so fast?" But you know, we had them all pretty. We, you know, you added a few. I don't know. I have a few ideas for the next couple things that I, I want to do. I want to do a really mellow, <clears throat> mellow like "Hurt Me" Johnny Thunder's acousticy kind of harvest record. Oh, and I also then want to do something really loud and noisy and physical. Um, while I can still do it, hopefully, before I, you know, start tightening up my cummerbund and come know. on, yeah, you I want to do like something else, like so. I want to kind of do that, but um, but this record, I'm really proud of and, and really excited to, it's to great, play it live. It's to take great. The songs, I've been, you so. know, it's been it's been on my my. Uh, when is it coming out? It's coming out August 30th. Yeah. Oh yeah, August so, 30th. Uh, Sunset Kids. Yeah, it's on this label, Wicked Cool, that Steve Van Zandt uh, has going. How'd you get that going? You I you do a radio show with him. I I just fill in. I um you know been asked to do full radio there, which is so much fun because he's got this great library of music and it's in everybody's car that has this Sirius satellite and and he loves for you to babble on about you know backstories and anecdotes of songs and so it's it's real fun to do but uh i'm so busy with other things that to do a full-time show would be hard so I, when somebody goes on vacation i go in and do some shows and and i'll interview some people too i just interviewed danita sparks from l7 and uh and that was a lot of fun they have a new record with the original lineup too but so he has a label and he's puts out a lot of bands you know singles and stuff and and they, they heard the record. One of the kids that runs the label for him, this guy Dennis, uh, Dennis Mortensen, is great. And he, he, you know, we were recording. He has a studio up there. You've been there, Renegade, right next door to where the I station is place. and the label. And, and so we were recording at that, and that was uh, a Jeff. lot of fun. And so the music was seeping through the door. Yeah, Jeff Sanoff is a, a great guy. Jeff. Yeah, who worked great on the record. Dude. He mixed most of the record and recorded, you know, a, a lot of it here on the East Coast in in, uh, in Stevens Place, Renegade, and also Flux Studios. Big Lux. shout out there. <laughs> so uh, it just kind of came together naturally. And, uh, yeah, the crazy record business of 2019. But uh, I think I'm it's, excited. It's going to be on vinyl. it's one of your vinyl. best records, man, for sure. No, thank you. I look forward to I look forward to getting it getting it out there and uh, but yeah, we we'll get it on the vinyls with the with the packaging and the lyric sheet, the booklet. So How many tracks? CD ROM and ramen noodles. I think it's fourteen songs. Fourteen. Yeah, it's a little long, but it, it's only forty six minutes, and it comes with a free RC cola. Mine's ten. Keith won't let me. Keith won't let me do more than ten. Yeah. Well, maybe eleven, but this was the first record where I was fighting with the manager to do less songs, and he wanted more. Oh, he wanted more. Not because he wanted more on there, because he couldn't decide. It was the weirdest thing. That's I've good. had every other manager producer go get it down to ten or eleven, and I wanted less. And he pushed. And he's like, "Oh, you got to put this on there," and I was like, "Oh, come on, you know." But um, it was it was sweet. I mean, it wasn't you know he, he meant it so. So we'll see, but and it, it comes it's short. with a free RC cola. Yeah, just like the Chinese are, Democracy are the, record. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? That's what, what when the, the Guns N' Roses record came out, Chinese Democracy, yeah. they gave out a free RC cola if you bought it. At, no, uh, yeah, remember that? I don't remember yeah. that. Right, look it up on the Google Meister. That's an underrated album. It's yeah. a weird album. Our friend Tommy Stinson wrote some songs yeah. on that yeah. record. He's got I some mean, writing credits on there. Guns for a while. He was in there a long time. Yeah. Yeah. He would sing Sonic Reducer some nights when I saw them. But what do you think, uh, Ehud? You got any more questions? Well, we should plug. I think you're still touring now, even though the album's not out, and you're doing like special shows where you're doing the full fine art. We're um, going out in June because oh, yeah, we're doing some things to to keep busy. 
uh, until the album comes out. So what else do is to yeah, go go backwards this, to go be... forwards. So uh, we're going with uh, Fine Art of Self Destruction in the UK, a bunch of dates in Ireland, nice. and then uh, then we come back and and get ready for Sunset Kid stuff with Webster Hall on September 14th, and then. Uh, London, and then we do the U.S. maybe with Joseph. You had a few shows in the city where you did all your albums recently, didn't you? Yeah, I did something uh, where we played a lot of the records. Not all of them, but we did a bunch each night. We did a different album just to kind of... Coney Island. Yeah, Coney Island. And and then we throw in some new songs because, you know, until people know them, you know, you always wonder how that's going to go over. But you got to get them dirtied up and, and play them in public, you know. Isn't it great when they go over though? Like you do a new one and it's like better than any of your old ones. <laughs> that, that's like the, great. That's the best feeling. I'm always self-conscious. I always think of when I go see Motorhead and you're dying to hear like Ace of Spades and Stay Clean and you know uh, Overkill or whatever Iron Cross and uh, Iron Fist and and then he's like, "Here's a new one," and you know he used to be like, "All right," and it's a slow song, and then you're like, "It's okay." He's gonna play you know Bathroom Killed by Ray. Death, and he goes, "Here's another new one. Here's a new one." <laughs> Yeah. Lemmy, we miss you. Lemmy. Woo, what do we got here? We got the, the quarter inch, the jacks, you know, these cables. We call them cables. Overseas, they call them leads, you know. Yeah. You got a lead, plug, uh, do a lead. We got you the want a lead. Leads, you want to do a fill? These ones are mono. Live at Check leads, one, two. baby. It's not even, Peter it leads. even work. Next podcast. This is what it would have looked like. <laughs> woo, woo, woo. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's a, that's a wrap <laughs> for uh, podcast number one. Oh, Come no. from, how do we do? What do you think? Woo! On a scale of one to ten, is it? You can edit it out. I mean, Jesse killed it. Jesse crushed it. it. (laughs) Yeah. All right, man. Thank you so much, Jesse. Thank you, Joe. Yeah. Yeah. Keep doing these. Love you, my brother. Love you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Ehud, thank you. Thank you, Ehud. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Cut. Cut. (laughs) But we're still rolling.